preach the word in season, preach the word out of season, preach the word with great patience and instruction, preach with patience, preach with patience and instruction. The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Uh, Why don't you open up your Bibles to 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, where going to open up our uh, scriptures once again uh, to the book of uh, 1 Peter, the incredible uh, book of 1 Peter. There's so much that's contained uh, within this book. Uh, The last time that we were together in 1 Peter, uh, we were studying the response of the church when our faith is under fire. How How does the church respond when the world turns against the church? What, what does it look like to live as a believer when living as a believer is what you're suffering for? How do you keep the faith when you're suffering for it? And in 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 13 to 17, it gave us some very powerful and practical ways uh, to think through those questions. And uh, we found in this ancient letter some very timely advice uh, that's more helpful and relevant than anything else that you could find today. How are we to respond when the church is under fire, number one, we're to do good. Verse 13 of uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, it says we're to respond by being zealous for good works. We're to think rightly. In verse 14, it says we're to consider ourselves blessed if we do suffer. We're not to fear. Don't fear. Verse 14 again, we are not to fear or to be troubled by those who seek to intimidate us. We're to honor Christ. Verse 15, we're to regard Christ as Lord in our hearts. Fear him above anyone else who would seek to oppose us. We're to be ready. Verse 15 again. We're to be ready to give an account of our hope. And we're also to stay clean. Verse 16. We're to maintain a clean conscience so that we have nothing to be ashamed about. Can can you find any better advice than that? There's no need for you to be confused about what to do when you find yourself under pressure, under fire. The battle plan is right here before us. Do good, think right, don't fear, honor Christ, be ready, stay clean. And starting in verse 18, Peter reminds us that we have much more than just a battle plan when we find ourselves under fire. We have a war general, and he's already won the greatest battle for us, and that's what verses 18 to 22 focus on. Uh, This passage lets us know that the final victory has already been secured, will be brought all the way home, There's no uncertainty about our destination. And not only that, but our Savior is also the perfect example. In other words, how do I suffer for the sake of righteousness? How do I do that? By looking unto Jesus, the the one who has suffered for the sake of righteousness, the author and finisher of our faith. We keep our eyes focused on him. And that's the connection between verses 17 and 18. In uh, verse 17 It reminds us that it is better if it should be the will of God to suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. And and who do we know who has suffered for doing what is right? Who do we know who has suffered for doing what's right? Verse 18, for Christ also died or suffered for sins once for all, 
the just for the unjust. So if you find yourself in a situation where you're suffering for doing the right thing, all you need to do is look to the Savior, the captain of your soul, for all the encouragement that you'll need to carry on. He's been there and he's done that. And we can live with the confidence that there is no righteous suffering, that he does not provide the pathway and the pattern for you to follow. You can, you can trace your life over his lines. And ultimately, there is no difficulty that will knock us off course and prevent us from reaching our destination. We will all be brought safely home, all the way home, to the, to the celestial shores by our great captain. Amen? And this is such a, a precious portion of, of scripture. It's concise, it's comprehensive, and it's my prayer that we walk away with a greater comfort because of what we understand before us. Let's take a look at 1 Peter chapter 3. I'll start at verse 18. Actually, I'll start at verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. And do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you once again, as we always do. My Father, trusting in, in you, the author of this book, to give us understanding. Father, to, to help us to, to live according to what we read. My Father, that you would uh, allow us, Lord, to, to not be like those who uh, behold their, their face in a mirror and walk away and forget what they look like. And Father, you've also, in this text specifically, Lord, given us a grand view of Jesus Christ. Uh, so Father, I pray that we would behold and wonder and rejoice in our Savior, the one who has given his life, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to you. And Father, I pray that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. The, the text before us is actually considered one of the ancient confessions or creeds of the early church. Uh, it's concise in its presentation of the truth, and if you look at verse 18, and also in verse 22, it reads much like a statement of faith. You know, all, all you have to do is add the words, we believe. You know, we sang it earlier. You know, we believe in God the Father. We believe in Christ the Son. All you need to do is add the words, we believe, to this verse. And you could use this as a statement of faith. Look at verse 18. If you add, we believe, we believe in Jesus Christ, who died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And then drop down to, to verse 22. We believe in Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. That the righteous life of Christ, his substitutionary death, his glorious ascension into heaven, his universal lordship are all contained in these two short verses. And it's really remarkable how, how much theology is contained in such a brief space. And it's memorable. Some scholars even believe that uh, this early statement would have been used in the songs and the hymnody of the early church. 
And there's definitely a, a rhythm and a parallelism in the Greek text that even comes through in the, in the English. Words like the just for the unjust. Put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. And it's verses like these that gave rise to some of the ancient creeds and confessions of the early church. I would argue that the, uh, the earliest confession of the church is what we find in Matthew 16, in verse 16, uh, where Peter responds to Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That was the, the confession that the church was built on. That was the, the earliest and the most primary confession of the Christian church upon which all the other confessions of Christianity were built upon. But throughout the scripture, we find other concise statements of belief. Why don't you flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We have the uh, Apostle Paul who's writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, and giving him instructions for uh, the church, which, by the way, is not your house, it's God's house. And uh, what we do in the church uh, should be rela- uh, related directly back to him and to his command. But in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, we have a, a common confession of the early church. Look at verse 16. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And there's many other texts that speak of a similar aspect of Jesus' life. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1. And we see here, over in uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, another concise statement of faith about Jesus Christ. And it was verses like this that gave rise to the early confessions and creeds of the Christian church. For example, as early as the 4th century, the church began using a concise statement of faith known as the Apostles' Creed. Listen to the, the first part of this creed and the similar confession that it makes. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day He arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, sitteth at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence He shall come to judge the living and the dead. And again, the, the substitutionary death of Christ, His glorious ascension, then uh, the, the universal lordship is all contained in that statement. And it was statements like this that for almost 2,000 years of the church has been memorized, included in worship, even recited before Christians were put to death. And the foundation for that statement is based in part on 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. This is truth that we, we live by. This is truth that we die by. It's also important to note that this statement is found in the context of suffering. Suffering is the context for the statement of faith. And there's no better time to remind people of what they truly believe than when they are suffering. And, and why is that? It's because trials and suffering has a way of disorienting us and making us forget what we know. That's why John the Baptist, when he was trapped in prison, if you remember in Matthew chapter 11, he sent his disciples to Jesus to ask what? Are, are you the expected one? <laughs> are, are you the expected one or shall we look for somebody else? You know, you scratch your head and you say, I, I, I thought that John the Baptist was the guy who pointed Jesus out in the first place. I mean, he was the one who was identifying Jesus for everybody else. Behold, the, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remember that? Back in John chapter 1 and verse 29. 
He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Everybody, this is the one. This is the one who I was talking about. He identifies Jesus, but now he's wondering, are, are, are you the one or are we looking for somebody else? What, what happened, John? What happened? While he's in, in prison, while he's suffering, suffering has a way of disorienting you and making you forget what you know. Need a little bit of affirmation, right? That's what John needed while he was in prison. He needed the affirmation. Are you the one? I, I need to hear it again. Can, can, you, can you tell me the truth one more time? Same thing happened to Elijah over in uh, 1 Kings chapter 18. Remember, he, he prayed to the Lord. The Lord answered him by fire. I mean, there's, he's, he's on the top of his game. Top of the world. Top of the mountain. 1 Kings 18, 38. The fire of the Lord fell, consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, the dust, licked up the water that was in the trench. 450 prophets of Baal killed. This is, this is Elijah calling the nation of Israel back to the Lord. Whoever answers by fire, he's the true God. Listen to him. Follow him. But then Jezebel, one single lady, threatens him, and Elijah runs for his life. What happened? <laughs> Trials have a way of disorienting us, making us forget what we know. And he had to hear the, the still, small voice of the Lord again to remind him that I'm with you, right? There's no better time to remind people about what they truly believe than when they're suffering. And when we find ourselves suffering for righteousness' sake, we need to remind ourselves of what we know to be true. And what do we know? Verse 18, we know that Christ also died for sins. We know that Jesus suffered, that he died and that's the connection, like I said, that's being made between verses 17 and 18. Because the people who Peter is writing to were suffering. They're experiencing hardship. They're suffering for doing what is right. So what do they need to be reminded of? There's your captain who's went before you, and he also suffered for doing what is right. Why is it better to suffer for doing what is right? What good comes out of doing what's right? Do we have any examples of those who suffered for doing what's right and it paid off? Why don't you look to Jesus? The answer is Jesus Christ. Look to Jesus. Are you forgetting that Christ also suffered? Some manuscripts read suffered. Some manuscripts read died. Uh, the manuscript evidence is, is split. I would actually uh, lean towards the, uh, the, 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 the version that says that he died as being the, the correct uh, word that's being used there. But uh, those two Greek words, very similar in the Greek, and also, they talk about the same event. They're both talking about his suffering unto death. So whether your translation says suffered or says died, we're talking about the same thing. Because Jesus Christ suffered unto death, suffered to the point of death. His suffering then becomes our example. He's the answer for why suffering for righteousness pays off. And there's a number of ways that Peter points this out in the text. What are the benefits of suffering? What are the benefits of the suffering of Jesus? Number one, his suffering was a satisfactory suffering. It says he, he died once. Once. His suffering was a substitutionary suffering. It was the just for the unjust. His suffering was a reconciliatory suffering because it brings us to God. And number four, his suffering was a triumphal suffering. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So let's take a look at each of these aspects of the, the benefits of the sufferings of, of Christ. Number one, his suffering was a satisfactory suffering. Look again at verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all. 
When we speak about the, the death of, of Christ being satisfactory, what we're saying is that there was nothing else that needed to be done to pay for sins. His death was enough. And it only needed to happen one time. That's the idea behind the word once. It's the Greek word hapax. Uh, some of you uh, uh, may have heard the, the term hapax legomena. I, I think seminary students just like saying that to like, impress people. You know, this is a hapax legomena here. You know. Hapax just means once. That's all it means. Legomena, saying. It's a once said word. It it's only appears once in the Bible. You know, the hapax legomena is something that's only spoken once. And here we find that Jesus Christ suffered or died once. When we think about the death of, of Christ, it's an event that only had to take it place one time in history. No repeated crucifixions, nothing else necessary. Once was sufficient. And that's what the word once signifies. It's once for all time. It doesn't bear repeating. It was actually the same word that was used in the Old Testament when Abraham was pleading for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember that? And he comes before the Lord and he's, he's begging for the, uh, the people that were in the city and he comes before the Lord again and again and again. He keeps on whittling down. You know, if, if 50 people are there, 40 people, he keeps on coming down until he gets to the verse 32 in Genesis 18. Then he says, oh, may the Lord not be angry and I shall speak only this once. This is the last time. Once and no more. It was used to speak about the Day of Atonement where there's only one sacrifice that was actually brought into the, the Holy of Holies only once a year, once and no more. It's also used in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, where it speaks about the appointed time of our departure from this earth. In chapter 9, and verse 27, it says, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. No reincarnation. You don't get a second chance in hell. Once and the judgment. In Hebrews 9, 28, the scripture uses the same word to speak of Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice for sins. Hebrews 9.28. So Christ, also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. In fact, why don't, why don't you turn back to, to Hebrews chapter 10? Because there's an important point I want to make here. Hebrews chapter 10. The book of, of Hebrews focuses on the supremacy of Jesus Christ like no other book of scripture. Now, one author said that the, the book of Romans reveals the necessity of the faith, but the book of Hebrews reveals the superiority of the Christian faith because Christ is just, he just reigns supreme in all 13 chapters of this book. Everywhere you turn, Christ is placed next, next to some person or ceremony or symbol, and he reigns supreme every time. Christ offers a better hope, a better covenant, better promises, better blood, a better sacrifice, better possession, better country, a better resurrection. And over in uh, Hebrews chapter 10, we find that Jesus is also a better priest. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 11. It says, Every priest stands daily, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, referring to Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins, for all time sat down at the right hand of God waiting for that time onward until his enemies, enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. One offering for all time. The Old Testament priest must have had sore feet because he always stood. His job was never done. Relentless, every day, every day, every day, offering the sacrifices. In Israel, a lamb was to be offered 
every morning, every evening. Exodus 29 speaks about that. There's an offering in the morning, an offering in twilight. On the Sabbath day, two additional lambs were to be offered up. This is to happen continuously. In addition to that, there was the daily sacrifice uh, that was offered up by people who were bringing the sacrifices. And then there was the beginning of each new month. There was the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Passover celebration. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, 250,000 lambs were killed on one Passover during the time of Christ. That's a quarter million lambs that were offered up. These guys didn't get a break. (laughs) Constantly, day in, day out, offering up sacrifice, 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 time after time after time. It was a bloodbath in the temple. There was actually a, a, a channel where the river would run down. This is the kind of sacrifice that took place. The priest's job was never done. And that was only reinforced by the the furniture that belonged in the temple. Think about what's in the temple. There's an altar. There's a basin. There's a table. There's a candlestick holder. There's the Ark of the Covenant. But there are no chairs. (laughs) No chairs. Why? Because the priest couldn't sit down. He always had something to do. There, There was the mercy seat for God, but there was no seat for the priest. He stood. Every priest stands daily, ministering, offering time after time the same sacrifices. But what does Hebrews chapter 10 say in verse 12? But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down. The job was done. The job is finished. He sat down. Hebrews 10, 14, for by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. It was one and done. And on the cross, just before Jesus breathed his last, what did he say? It is finished. It's paid in full. There's nothing else that's left to be done. If you want to know what good comes out of suffering for righteousness sake, look to Jesus. The one who after suffering sat down. His suffering was satisfactory before the Father. And he did his suffering to pay off all of our sins. One sacrifice so worthy that it was sufficient to pay for every sin of every person who would ever believe. And he offered up before God a pleasing aroma, satisfactory suffering. Number two, his suffering was a substitutionary suffering. Verse 18 says, he suffered as one who was the just for the unjust. His suffering was substitutionary, a, a vicarious suffering for sins that he himself did not commit. If we want to speak about unjust suffering, a lot of people want to talk about, you know, I'm suffering unjustly. There is nobody who suffered more unjustly than Jesus Christ. Because there was never anything that he did wrong to deserve suffering. What wrong had he done? We pointed out last week that even his accusers accusers couldn't find anything wrong that he had done. Pontius Pilate heard all of the false accusations and says, What has he done? What evil has he done? I find no guilt in him. Judas' betrayer says, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. The centurion who crucified him said, certainly this man was innocent. The thief who was crucified on the cross next to Christ, he spoke to the other thief and he says, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. This man has done nothing wrong. And that was the common testimony of all of Jesus' enemies even during his life. His enemies had to come up with 
false testimony to accuse Jesus with because they couldn't condemn him rightly. Matthew 26, verse 59. says, Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death, and they did not find any. They, they couldn't find a good reason to put him to death. And Jesus could stand before his accusers in John 8, verse 46, and says, Which, which one of you convicts me of sin? Like, like, step up, you know, which one of you has anything that you can rightly lay against my charge? Nobody, nobody. Jesus was sinless, sinless in his thoughts, his words, his actions, his desires, his intentions, all completely sinless. Second Corinthians 5, 21 says he knew no sin. Hebrews 4, 15 says he's been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. First John 3, verse 5 says in him there is no sin. He is the Holy One of God, the beloved Son of God, in whom the Father was well pleased. Completely, thoroughly righteous, which is what the word just here means. He's just, he's innocent, or in some of your translations, righteous. Jesus Christ is the righteous one. So when the beginning of the verse, in verse 18, says that Christ also died for sins, these sins were not his own. Whose sins did he die for? He died for the sins of the unjust, the unrighteous. The sinners. And the the word sins, when it says that that he died for sins, he died for sins, it's in the plural, which means that he's talking about the multiplied individual offenses. He's not talking about sin just as a a summary of your life. You know, just a characterization of your life as a whole. You know, he doesn't have to wait for the review of your life to come out before he can say, oh yeah, I need to die for that person because they're a sinner. If someone wanted to, to give a critique of a book or maybe of a movie, or even of a sermon. You know, you might want to wait until you hear the whole thing first before you give your critique, right? You know, you might want to wait until you get past the first chapter or get past the opening scene of a movie before you say, oh, this movie is trash, or this book is trash. But we don't have to wait for that kind of review to come out on our life. What Peter is saying by the use of this plural word for for sins is that every single individual solitary sin by itself would have been worthy of death. God doesn't have to wait for the totality of your life to determine that your life is trash. He doesn't have to wait for the review. Any one of your sins, the first time you sinned, would have been enough to defile your entire life and make you unworthy of the kingdom of God. James chapter 2, verse 10, says whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in how many points? One point. All you need is one. (laughs) One point. You stumble in one point, you've become guilty of all. So when Jesus came to die, he did not just die for your sin as a lifestyle or as the summary of your life. He died for the multiplied individual sins because every individual solitary sin was worthy of death. Every single offense that you commit has a price tag on it. And that price tag is death. And not just physical death, we all know that, but there's an eternal death. Every one of your sins... And now just think about how many times you've sinned today (laughs) and last week and the year before that. And you keep going back and think of every single solitary sin that Jesus Christ on the cross, he's heaping up every single one of those upon himself, not just for you, but for every person who would ever believe on Jesus Christ. Sins are worthy of death. Ezekiel 18 verse 4 says, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine, and the soul who sins will die. 
Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. Death. You know, sometimes I, I speak to people and they're saying, you know, I'm, I may sin, but I'm not a sinner. What do you mean by that? <laughs> How many times do you think you need to sin in order to, to be a sinner? You know, it's all or nothing with God. The law is all one piece. You've broken part of it, you've broken all of it. Over in the, the book of James, in uh, chapter 2, it says, For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. What, what is he saying? It all comes from the same source, all comes from the, the same law. You can't say, well, I'll take this and I'll leave that. You know, kind of like, uh, you know, pick your flavor, Baskin-Robbins, whatever. No, it's like it all comes together. You, you can't just kind of piecemeal it. The one who said, do not commit adultery, says, do not commit murder. Now, if you do commit adultery... Now, if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. If I'm standing on trial for, for murder and uh, all the evidence is in and, you know, yes, I'm, I'm guilty, I can't say, but hold on, judge, before you sentence me, I just want to let you know that I am faithful to my wife. <laughs> I, I am a family man, you know, before you put me away. Uh, I, you, can't, you, can't, you can't accuse me of breaking the law because I'm, I'm a faithful guy. I have never cheated on my wife. No, no, you're still a lawbreaker. That, that doesn't get you by. You don't get a pass for that. Any violation of God's law makes you a lawbreaker. Meaning also that any sin makes you a what? A sinner. Sinner before the eyes of God. Every sin makes you worthy of this death. And that's what's implied here in the statement. When the scripture says that Christ died for sins, what does that imply? The implication is that sins are worthy of death. Why else would it say that Christ died for sins if that wasn't the price for sins? The price tag for sin is death. Death is the penalty for my sin. There's also the implication that perfect righteousness is the only kind of life that would be acceptable to God. And Jesus is that spotless, unblemished life. 1 Peter 1.19 calls Christ the lamb, unblemished and spotless. And there's also the implication that your sins can be transferred or imputed to somebody else. And, and here's where the Old Testament background of the sacrificial system really gives us an explanation for what's going on here. Why don't you flip back to the book of Leviticus, the book of Leviticus. Because this is what Peter has in mind as he's speaking about Christ dying for sins. Look at uh, chapter 1 of Leviticus. The way that the, the penalty for, for sins were taken care of under the Old Testament law, when a man violated the law of God, he was required to bring a sacrifice for his sins. And he'd bring it to the priest and symbolically transfer the guilt of his sins to the sacrifice by, by laying his hands on the sacrificial animal. Take a look at uh, Leviticus chapter 1 and, and verse 4. Actually, I'll start at verse 3. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. Again, it had to be a, an unblemished sacrifice. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. He's identifying with this offering, transferring symbolically his sins to the head of this animal. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. And then what happened? Verse 5. He shall slay the young bull before the Lord. Laying his hands on the head of the animal, transferring the, symbolically the, the weight of his guilt onto the animal, and then after that was transferred over, then that animal was slain. Why? 
because that's what I deserve. That is what I deserve. Over in Leviticus 4, why don't you flip over there? Let's just know that the same thing was true not only of the individual, it was also true of the entire congregation, even for, for sins that they weren't aware of. Look at Leviticus chapter 4, look at verse 13. It says, Now if the whole congregation of Israel commits error, and the matter escapes the notice of the assembly, and they commit any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, and they become guilty, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a bull of the herd for a sin offering and bring it before the tent of meeting. Then listen to this, verse 15. Then the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord. Again, symbolically transferring the guilt of their sins onto the animal, and the bull shall be slain before the Lord. What was that saying? That's what my sins deserve. That's what my sins deserve. Sins are worthy of death, but a substitute could stand in your place. And what was communicated to the worshiper was that my sins are worthy of death. But like we mentioned before, that process had to be repeated over and over and over which meant that no sacrifice could completely remove and take away your sins. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4 says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And all of those sacrifices pointed forward to the ultimate sacrifice that was to come, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins, not just cover your sins, until the next time He would take them away. He would remove them. And that's what the death of Christ signifies. It's by faith that we lay our hands on the head of Jesus Christ the sacred head that was wounded, we lay our hands on Jesus Christ and the guilt of our sins is transferred to Him. And what happened to the Son of God? He was slain. He was slain. Why? Because that's what your sins deserve. Have have the guilt of your sins been transferred to Jesus Christ? Have you laid hold of Him by faith? Trusting in Him to be your atoning sacrifice. Have you laid hold of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who can take your sins away? And I would urge you to believe in the name of the the Son of God. John chapter 1 verse 12 says, For as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in His name. Acts 16 verse 31 says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe on Him. Transfer the weight of the guilt of your sins onto Jesus Christ, the one who was slain and Have your sins removed. That is the only way. Did any good come out of the suffering of Jesus Christ? Did his suffering pay off? Absolutely. His suffering was satisfactory. His suffering was substitutionary. Number three, his suffering was reconciliatory. Reconciliatory suffering. It was to reconcile us to God. Back in 1 Peter chapter 3, in verse 18, it says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. He brings us to God. And that implies that we are alienated from God. You understand that? Why do we have to be brought to God? Because we're not with God. And that implies we're alienated. Because of our sins, we are distant from God. Colossians 1.21 says that you formerly were alienated and hostile in your mind, engaged in evil deeds. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. Our sins separate us from God. Sin introduced a a separation between man and God that previously didn't exist. When Adam sinned in the garden, 
relationship was cut off. And it wasn't Adam who was running around the garden saying, Hey, God, where are you? Where are you? God, God, I need you. It wasn't Adam running around for God. God had to come and say, Adam, where are you? Because he was cut off. His sin separated him from God to the point where he didn't even want God. He wanted to hide himself from God. He didn't want to come and approach God. In the garden, man turned his back on God. And every person from that point on, every person born, born since Eden has been born with their backs away from God. Their back towards God and their face heading away from God. That's how every person since Eden has been born. You know, sometimes you hear people say, you know, I've, I've always known the Lord. You may not remember when you came to know the Lord, but you haven't always known the Lord. <laughs> you haven't always known the Lord. That's not true. Scripture says we're alienated from him. So even though God is consciously aware of everybody, he still speaks to people and says, I don't know you. I have no relationship with you. You're not reconciled to me. Why? It's not because he doesn't know who they are. It's because they have no relationship. They haven't entered through Jesus Christ. They haven't entered through the door. They're a thief and a robber. And what a dreadful state to be in. There are no more terrifying words for the Lord to say, then I don't know you. <laughs> I don't know you. Eternal life is bound up with a relationship with God. Jesus says in John 17 and verse 3 that this is eternal life. What's eternal life? That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's where eternity is bound up in, a relationship with God. Do I know the Lord? 1 John 5.20 says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him. You know, people tend to think of themselves as, you know, I'm, I'm okay with God. You know, I don't bother him, he doesn't bother me. You know, after all, I'm a pretty good person. You know, why should God have a, a problem with me? I, I don't bother nobody. I ain't bothering nobody. Why should God have a problem with me? One of the hardest things to convince people today is that you and God are not friends. <laughs> You're, you're not friends with God. You're not buddy-buddy with God. The truth is, is that man has declared war on God. That's the truth. We're alienated and we're hostile. We're enemies of the king. We've rejected his right to rule over us. And throughout human history, we've unsuccessfully attempted to overthrow the king of the universe. Luke 19 verse 14 explains the, the hearts of, of every man who's turned against God. We will not have this man to reign over us. I don't want his involvement in my life. You do your thing, I'll do mine. We're alienated from God because of our sins. And that's another picture that was presented in the sacrificial system. Why don't you flip back one more time to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus 16 speaks about the Day of Atonement. It was a picture of both death and alienation. Both death and alienation. It's the day of atonement. Leviticus 16, look at verse 7. This is the one time of year, like I mentioned before, that the, the blood from the sacrifice was actually brought through into the Holy of the Holies and, and sprinkled on the, the mercy seat. And God would forgive the sins of his people. But look at Leviticus 16. There's a picture that you might, might miss here. Look at verse 7. It speaks about this. This sacrifice that involved two goats. Two goats. Look at verse 7. It says, He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. 
Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell and make it a sin offering. That is the, the, the goat that was slain, okay? That's the picture of death, slain. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it. What kind of atonement are you talking about? To send it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Look at verse 21. It says, Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat again, transferring the guilt, the weight of sins, onto this goat, confess it over, over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel, all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. He shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. One goat was killed. That pictures the death that's required for my sins, right? One goat is killed, and the other goat is driven away, alienated. You don't belong here anymore. You have no welcome here anymore. And he's driven out. That, that is the other picture, the picture of being alienated. Our sins do what? They alienate us from God. We are driven away from his presence, and that is what we deserve. And isn't that what happened after Adam sinned? When Adam sinned, what happened? The Lord God, Genesis chapter 3, verse 23, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden, get out of here, to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim, the flaming swords, which turn in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. What was that a picture of? You are alienated. You, you have distanced yourself from me because of your sin. And mankind was driven out of the presence of God. And if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, do you know what? You're still wandering around in the wilderness. You're alienated from God. You've been driven away from His presence into the God-forsaken wilderness. That's where you are. If you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, you have been alienated, distanced from God. But what did the death of Christ do? And this is so Precious. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Why? So that he may bring us to God. You are out there wandering in the wilderness, alienated because of your sins, and Christ's death brings you back. That's what the, the death of Jesus Christ does. You don't have to worry about God holding your sins against you anymore. I like what uh, Tozer said. He says the captured rebel does not willingly uh, enter willingly into the presence of the king that he has fought so unsuccessfully to overthrow. It's like I've spent my whole life, you know, rejecting this king, arguing against this king, not, not wanting to be underneath the rule of this king. But for the Christian, we can boldly come before his throne because we have been completely reconciled and our sins don't stand in the way anymore. 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling, bringing back the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them were made presentable before the king. And back in uh, 1 Peter 3, verse 18, when it says that he might bring us to God, that same word was used in the, the context of, of priests being presented for service, an offering being presented as acceptable, a leper being presented as cleansed, or an offering being presented before a king. And in this context, it definitely has the idea of, of being presented in such a way that you will be received. You have been brought to God to be received by him. And if you're going to be accepted by God, he has to be the one to prepare you to be received by him. 
You, you can't fix yourself up to present yourself before God. There, there's nothing you can do to make that work. Same truth that was illustrated back in uh, Matthew chapter 22 in the parable of the wedding banquet. Remember that? There's the king. He's looking over the crowd that's been invited. And he sees a guy that's uh, not dressed in wedding garments. And he says, what? How'd you get in here? How, how did you get in? You don't have on the appropriate garments. But this king had just gotten people from the highways and the byways, the hedges and the highways. It's like, how do you expect them to be dressed? How, how do I expect them to be dressed? I give them their clothes. <laughs> I give them their clothes to wear. So, so what did this guy implied here in the text? What did he do? He says, I'm not going to wear the king's clothes. I'll come in my own stuff. He'll, he'll, he'll accept me anywhere, any way I come. You know, just as I am. No, it's not just as you are. It's just as you're changed, right? You come before God in the clothes that he provides. What's the clothes that he provides? The garments of righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We come before God clothed, robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. His robes for mine. I'll take his robes in exchange for mine. Thank you very much, right? I'll come in his robes, his robes of righteousness. How does our king prepare us? He presents us as holy and blameless and beyond reproach. He makes us stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. And how did that happen? This all happened because of the death of Jesus Christ, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The Son of God was put to death. Christ died for sins once for all. But that's not the end of the story. Because not only was his suffering a satisfactory suffering, substitutionary suffering, a reconciliatory suffering, but it was also a triumphal suffering. Jesus triumphed in his suffering. And I'm telling you, that statement is so packed that we'll have to leave that there for now. But I'm telling you, you don't want to miss what we have to say about this next week. He was put to death by the hands of sinful men, but in the spirit, he was made triumphant. But quickly, let me take you to the end of the passage because this is where his triumph takes us. Look at verse 22. First Peter 3, look at verse 22. It speaks about the one who is at the right hand of God. This is where his triumph takes him. To the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So when you're asking yourself, why should I suffer for the sake of righteousness? What, what good comes out of suffering for what is right? Do we, do we have any examples of those who've suffered for doing what is right and it paid off? What do we do? We look to Jesus Philippians chapter 2 verse 9 says, For this reason God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And it was his suffering, after his suffering, that he received his exaltation. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10 says, It was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through his sufferings. Through his sufferings. So when we're asked to suffer for the sake of of righteousness, Jesus is not asking us to do something that he hasn't already done himself. And if we have any questions about whether or not suffering for the sake of righteousness pays off, All we have to do is look to Jesus Christ because he's been there and done that. (laughs) He's been there and done that. And because of his suffering, he will bring many sons to glory. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. 
Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you, Lord, and uh, Father, we thank you uh, that there is an answer for the, the unjust suffering that we experience in this life. And the answer is found in Jesus Christ. That if we ever had any doubt, if we had any, have any concern, if we've ever had any concern about whether or not suffering in this life pays off, whether it's worth it in the end, all we have to do is look to Jesus Christ. And Father, we know that even the suffering that we endure in this life will one day be rewarded. Because those of us who belong to him, we will be brought all the way to glory. And everything that we have suffered in this life for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ will then be rewarded and it will all be worth it in the end. So Father, I pray that you would encourage those who may be here even today, uh, those who have suffered uh, because of of unrighteous people around them, uh, those who have suffered even in the in, in, in cases where they've done nothing wrong, there was no sin committed, but they still suffer for it. Those who have suffered just because they, they stood up and counted themselves as being believers, as being Christians. They opened their mouth and, and confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, and because of that, they're suffering, whether it's on their job, in their neighborhoods, in their family. Father, I pray that you would encourage them, strengthen them, help them to, to keep their eyes focused on the author and finisher of their faith, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.